I love what Andy said about grace, grace being a kindness that God does for us that we don't deserve. And as we were singing that song, I just had this thought, as I often do, that I just feel so incredibly blessed that I get to be among the people of God, that I'm saved, that I get to pastor such a wonderful church like Stephen Street Baptist Church. Uh, I, feel, I, I feel so blessed that God has given me so much grace and so much kindness uh, just in the life that He has allowed me to enjoy. And I know that you probably feel the same way. If you have a relationship with Jesus, uh, there have been points in your life where you have you felt the exact same about the things that God has done for you and the grace that God has given to you. I'm super excited to be with you on the Lord's Day. Uh, really excited to have a lot of our tech students that are back uh, and many that are visiting with us today. Uh, welcome, uh, at least to those of you who are sitting over here. Some of you might be scattered about. Uh, we're certainly glad to have... Uh, Certainly glad when our tech students come back in, in August and then they disappear for a little while around Christmas and they rematerialize around January and we're always uh, always glad to, to, to have you guys back. Uh, so uh, I'm glad to be here on the Lord's Day. Uh, I love being in church and I love the book of 1 John. Uh, the book of 1 John, I started last week. I'm going to be in 1 John chapter 2 today. Uh, we're going to look at just six verses and last week I introduced this series by talking about how we're going to be looking at recognizable characteristics of people with eternal life. Recognizable characteristics of people who know Jesus as Savior. And as I explained last week, everything in life has certain recognizable characteristics. If I tried to explain to you what a, you know, a car that was white that had blue lights, you would automatically say, well, that, those are recognizable characteristics of a police car. If I were to describe to you a piece of equipment that's often used on a farm that has large tires and a big bucket in the front where you could scoop up things, you would say, you know what, those characteristics, they really sound like a tractor. If I was to tell you about a certain type of individual um, with no high school education, a, a mullet, and missing teeth, you would immediately recognize that as an Alabama fan. Uh, there are just certain recognizable characteristics of really everything, every item that we could think about, every type of person that we could think about, or even an event. What's amazing to me is the diversity that exists among Christians. Think about the diversity that exists among Christians. From a worldly standpoint, Many of us have absolutely nothing in common from a worldly standpoint from a Christian that lives in another country or lives in another century. I mean, whether it's from a worldly standpoint, we are completely different. But from a spiritual standpoint, we are identical. There are things about us that are identical to the very first Christians to whom John wrote his book. There are certain things distinguishing characteristics about true believers. Last week I mentioned three of these. Fellowship with God, that we have a special relationship with Him if we're truly a believer, if we have eternal life. We talked about the confession of sin, that we have an accurate perception of self if we really know Jesus as Savior. And then also we talked about forgiveness, that you know, forgiveness is, is, forgiveness is not just something that we accept mentally. Forgiveness is something that we experience from God whenever we, whenever we understand that He has removed our sin from us. 
And uh, the book of 1 John can really be summed up very simply. One verse in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, uh, I showed this to you last week, I uh, show it to you again today, and it's basically the theme of the book, where John says, um, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may be assured that you have eternal life. You see, when we go through these recognizable characteristics of Christians, of true believers, what happens is when you see those characteristics in yourself, it gives you assurance. It gives you assurance that, that I do know Christ, that, that God is with me. And I don't know about you, but I need that assurance. I've been walking with Jesus for 31 years. I need the Lord to assure me from time to time and to say, I'm with you. You are my child. We are going to be together forever. All relationships need that type of assurance. And certainly our relationship with Jesus, we need that as well. Well, today we're going to look at another characteristic uh, that hopefully will give you assurance of your eternal life. And it has to do with obedience. It has to do with how we are obedient to Jesus and specifically uh, to Jesus' commands. And we're going to look at these six verses. Now, I'm going to get... I'm going to get kind of a kind of a running start at, at this at this particular topic today because we're going to look at something that is absolutely incredible about Jesus, about what he has done for us and what he what he currently does for us as our advocate that really lends itself towards us being obedient to him. So we're going to get to this, this characteristic of obedience at the end of the sermon, um, but kind of towards the middle. Um, it's going to seem like we're getting off track, but I promise it's headed someplace. Uh, I want to read together uh, the first six verses of John chapter 2. Please stand with me as we just give attention and reverence uh, to God's Word and just, uh, just uh, uh, give Him the attention that He needs uh, when He speaks. And we believe that when the Bible speaks, uh, that the Lord speaks. Now look at these verses. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. Everyone say propitiation. Propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we may know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him truly is the love of God perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these verses. We thank you, Lord, that in these verses we can find assurance. We thank you, Lord, that in these verses we can find that which you want us to avoid, sin. And God, in these verses we find some beautiful truth about what Jesus has done for us 
and about what he does do for us. Father, speak to your people. Lord, I, 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 can, I can speak loud. I can speak soft. I can speak words of, of comfort. I, I can speak. But Lord, I, I can't speak like you can. Lord, only your Holy Spirit can speak to a heart. God, would you do that today? Would you talk to your people? Would you give them comfort? Would you give them assurance? Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Okay, so first off, in talking about obedience, we need to think about the opposite, and that is obviously disobedience. When we, we start thinking about disobedience, obviously we're thinking about sin. And that's how these verses start off. These, uh, these verses in John chapter 2 start off with the idea of sin. Sin is basically disobedience to God. We all know what sin is. Uh, I mean, being in church, we talk about sin a lot. Uh, the culture doesn't like for us to talk about sin, doesn't like for us to point out sin. But as believers, it is a necessary, it's a necessary exercise in, in how we practice our faith and in how we learn about our faith. Uh, the word sin is used over 400 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. That doesn't include the plural form of the word, and it doesn't include other words that describe our disobedience like iniquity or disobedience or, or any of those other words that, uh, that are included in that. Sin is any type of disobedience to God in word, thought, or deed. Word, thought, or deed. All of these things can be sinful. It also, it, uh, our attitudes, our desires, and even our motivations for certain things, uh, even if we're trying to do the right thing, can be sinful if on the inside we're not like we need to be, if our motivation is wrong. Sin is also failing to live up to God's standards of goodness. So sin's not just something that we do. Sin also, sin also describes um, our state of, of, of not being able to do what we need to do. Uh, hence, hence the scripture, we all fall short of the glory of God. And all of us, hopefully, could understand ourselves to be sinners from that standpoint. We could say, God is glorious, God is perfect, and I fall below that, which means uh, that, uh, that I'm, a, I'm a sinner. Now, the goal of the Christian, obviously, is to not sin. That's right out the gate what John says. When he says little children, basically what he's saying is it's an affectionate term to describe Christians. These verses are towards Christians. And I think that's important to understand as we move through this text. These, uh, this is what John is saying to Christian people when he says, my little children, he's speaking affectionately. And he's saying, hey, I'm writing these things to you, all these things to you, so that you might not sin. Most Christians that I know that truly love Jesus, that have eternal life, they don't want to sin. They want to identify the things that are in their life that shouldn't be there and whatever thoughts or deeds or, or whatever it might be, and they want to not sin because we know and we understand that sin is an enemy, is really is the arch enemy of life in general. The only reason that there is death on the earth is because a long time ago, Adam and Eve sinned, and that brought death into the world. Everything about sin destroys life. I've, I've heard explained before that, like if if life can be re if, if if you if you if life can be represented by a boat, that sin would be like the hole in the boat. Or if if we represented life as like a, a piece of metal, then sin would be like the the, the rust 
that kind of corrodes that metal. Or, or if, 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 life was, uh, if life was like a human body, then we would say that sin's like a, a cancer or a sickness um, that, de- that destroys that body. Um, sin destroys God's best. It removes from us, it robs us, it takes away from us the things that God most wants for us. So we have to ask ourselves, I want to ask you this question. Uh, what happens whenever a Christian sins? What happens whenever a Christian sins? I want you to imagine with me, all right, let me just, let, let me just, uh, l- let me just talk to you from an imaginary standpoint. I want you to imagine with me that you are in the throne room of God, okay? Or maybe, uh, maybe you're, 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 you got to have a picture into the throne room of God. And uh, God the Father sitting there, and, uh, and God the Son is seated right next uh, to God the Father, okay? And you can see into heaven, and you commit a sin, you commit a sin, and you can, you can, you can peer into heaven, and you can kind of see what happens in that moment whenever you sin. Now, what comes to your mind? What do you, what do you, what do you imagine happens or takes place Whenever you sin, if you could peer into the throne room with the awareness that God sees it happen. Um, this is where most of us probably feel kind of guilty. We might think that if we could peer into the throne room as God sees us sin, that we might think that God kind of goes, oh, he kind of turns his face. I cannot believe that guy. Or we might think that God gets mad. What is wrong with you? Um, or we might think, you know, what's that old song, when he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't just putting on the ritz. God, God rolls up his sleeves, and man, he's getting ready to just rain, rain down lightning bolts on you, you know, for, for what you have done. Maybe, you've, maybe you have this picture of God wrinkling up his brow. Maybe he just leaps up from the throne and goes, oh, man, I can't believe that. Maybe he looks over at the, at the Son of God and says, you died for that guy? Man, he should know better. I mean, did we not give him our word? I mean, he's got it written right there on the page. Why can he just not do what I say? You know, some of us, I, I, I think that some people really picture God that way. That somehow God, like, you know, he, he pitches a fit or he gets mad. Or, or sometimes we, we, we picture God as going, oh. Whenever we sin, oh, we just, we just, we just hurt it. We just hurt him so bad as if we do some kind of damage to him. This is the thing that really gets me about this verse: is that the Bible says that Jesus is our advocate, and that because he is our advocate, and because of what he did on the cross, that. All of the punishment, and, the, and, and, and this is important, the anger that you deserve from God and the wrath that you deserve from God because of your sin, it's gone. It's gone. And so to play out this imaginative scene in your mind around the throne room whenever you sin, whenever you sin, the Bible says that Jesus is your advocate. And basically the original language, this, the, we, we, get the, we get the image of an expert defense attorney. I, I, want you to, I want you to also imagine another scene. I want you to imagine that on earth you have committed a heinous crime. 
You've done something really, really bad, and you're going to have to go face it in court. You would not want to do that alone. You would want to have a lawyer, an attorney, someone that was really good, that would come alongside you, that knew what they were talking about, that would make sure that you at least got a fair trial. This is, this is what the Bible says that Jesus does, that basically He defends us to the Father. I believe that whenever we sin, that Jesus still has open arms and He still looks upon us with love. You see, the only person, listen to me, Christian person out there, the only person that is trying to accuse you and make you feel guilty and make you feel bad and to drive you away from God because of your sin is Satan. He is the only one that is trying to do that. Jesus is, is, is up there advocating for you, pulling you close, even whenever you sin. Jesus is wanting to pull you close and keep you in a relationship. In fact, the only reason why a relationship between you and God is maintained is because of Jesus and His work on the cross. And this is, this is where this next word comes in. Propitiation. I want you to think about this word. This word means, from a theological perspective, it means to satisfy or to extinguish the wrath and the anger of God. This, so whenever Jesus, as your advocate, um, goes to the throne of God on your behalf, He doesn't argue the fine points of God's law to declare your innocence. That's, that's, not, what, that's, not, that's not what happens. That might happen in a, in a worldly legal uh, setting, but in a heavenly setting that I've tried to get you to imagine in your mind, Jesus is not saying, oh no, Scott's not guilty of that sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is basically saying, oh, he's very guilty. I mean, we all saw it. He did it. it, that's, it he, he's 100% guilty. But however, Jesus on the cross, he was our propitiation, which where Jesus says, I took that anger, I took that wrath, I took that punishment upon myself. That's what Jesus did. Think about the punishment, the anger, the wrath, the punishment that you deserve for all of your lies, all of your lust, all of your pride, gossip, rebellion, selfishness, materialism, you name it. All the things that the Bible says is sin. I want you to think about all of that frustration and wrath that I tried to mimic on the stage just a minute ago that we typically pour out upon each other whenever we get mad at each other. I want you to, I want you to, I want you to picture all that wrath, all that anger, all, all that punishment that you rightfully deserve that was poured out on Christ. It was all dumped upon Him on the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God. All of that punishment, it was given to Him. And I believe that was the most painful part of the cross. 
I don't believe the most painful part was the nails in his hands and feet or the crown of thorns on his head or the scourging that he, that he took, the, the whip in his back or the beating or when he got hit over the head by a rod and, and mocked and when they spit upon him. I don't think that was the most painful part of the cross. I believe that whenever Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. I think that he was speaking about the distance that it was going to put between he and God whenever the sin of mankind was placed upon him. I can think of nothing worse for myself than to be separated from my God. I, I can't think of anything worse than that. And whenever Jesus, on the cross, when he cried out, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think he was saying, Lord, I can't believe that you would allow this pain happen to my physical body. I believe that he was writhing in pain as he was bearing the wrath and the anger of God upon himself. Jesus took all of that away from you. He took it all away. And now we have an advocate before the Father who was our propitiation. And by the way, I think this is an important verse. It says that Jesus, he says, he says I'm writing this little children, which is speaking of Christians. And he, he talks about if anyone does sin, speaking of Christians, he says we have an advocate. You see, non-believers don't have this. Non-believers don't, I cannot imagine going into eternity before the throne of God and having to give an account of my sin and not have Jesus as my advocate and my propitiation. But yet there are people that are slipping into eternity every day and that's going to be their reality. And they don't have to. It doesn't have to happen because he says, now speaking of all people, not just Christians, he says that he didn't, he didn't just die for the sins of, of just a certain people. It says, but also for the sins, plural, of the whole world. Speaking of everybody. The wrath of every sin, the anger that's deserved for every sin that emanated from God, His wrath for every sin of every person, it was all placed upon Christ. And isn't it sad that there are people in our world that don't take advantage of that? You see, the sacrifice of Christ is only effectual for those who actually have received Christ. It's like their debt has been erased, but they're still living under the burden of their sin. They're still living under the wrath of God, and they don't have to. They can accept Jesus, and He can be their defender, just like we sang last week, being our defender. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me get to the point of this sermon quickly. How does that make you feel? The reality of what Jesus has done for you, your propitiation, the reality of what Jesus does do for you, your advocate, and both of, the, both of these things, when you sin, that's why he's saying, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, someone that will defend us. He was our propitiation. He took our punishment. How does that make you feel? Does that make you think, mm, I got a license to sin. Man, I can just go out here. I can do anything I want to. 
because I have an advocate. And he's my expert attorney before God the Father. He's going to defend me, and he's going to tell God, as soon as I commit that sin, he's going to tell God, uh-uh-uh, all that anger was poured out upon me, so don't worry about it. Now I can just go sin all I want to, right? Is that, is, is that, how, is that how it makes you feel? If, that, if, if, it, if, if Christ being your advocate and Christ being your propitiation makes you feel like you have a license to sin and you can just gleefully and joyfully go out and do anything that you want to, you do not have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You just don't. Because when I see this, these, these, are not, these, are not just, these are not just random principles that I have put on the screen that I have read in the Bible. These are things that have actually happened to me. I have, I, and you too, I have felt and sensed the forgiveness of God, His wrath extinguished. I have, I have experienced Jesus hugging me, so to speak, even in the midst of sin, saying, I got you. He maintains my relationship with the Father. This is, this is personal for me. It doesn't make, this doesn't make me want to sin. This, this makes me want to worship. It makes me want to worship. This, this causes me to fall in love with Jesus when I grasp the magnitude of what He has done and I realize that I have this personally. I have been born again. This is what I call, I don't know any other way to put it, this is what I call relational obedience. Relational obedience. We see this in verses 3 through verses 5. Relational obedience. And this is a distinguishing characteristic of people who know Jesus. A distinguishing characteristic. It says, if we know him, not if we know him in our mind, you know in your mind what Jesus did for all the world. I just, I just told you. If you were listening, I just told you what Jesus did. That does, you might know it right here. That doesn't mean that you know him in your heart. You see, and by this we know we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, relational obedience is the best term that I can put on this because this is different than obligational obedience. I believe that a lot of Christians are trying to live out their Christianity with this obligational obedience. Well, my mama and daddy taught me better. The Bible says that I shouldn't do it. I know it's bad. I know it's not good. Okay, so I'm going to try to follow the commands of Jesus because I feel like I should. I'm kind of obligated. I feel guilty. I don't want anything bad to happen to me. I don't want God slinging lightning bolts, you know, from heaven. I want to, I want to keep my blessings, so I'm just going to kind of do what's right. Most of us follow rules in the world. Most of us follow rules that way. That's why you obey the speed limit. Um, you do not obey the speed limit because you love and have a relational connection with the Tennessee Department of Transportation. It's not like you're, you know, you're driving down the road, you, you know, driving down the interstate, you see that speed limit 70, and you go, oh, I just love T-Dot. Said nobody ever. You pay taxes out of obligation. You do not pay taxes because you love the IRS. If you love the IRS, there is something wrong with your brain. 
I mean, none of us like paying taxes. Now, I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying that we don't see purpose in it. I'm not saying all that. All right, I don't want to make any kind of political statements. I ain't going to like that on Sunday morning. I'm just saying, you pay taxes out of obligation. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? Well, you might feel guilty. I feel like I should, so I need to do this. It's good for our economy. We've got to have tax revenue. Or you might say, oh, they're going to they're gonna come and they're going to find out. They're going to audit me, and I'm going I'm to have, have more taxes. I'll be punishment. You don't do it because you love the IRS. Oh, I'm going to write this check to the IRS. They take it. Oh, I just love the IRS. Nobody does that. We obey rules from a worldly standpoint out of obligation. We obey Jesus because we know him and because we love him. We want to obey him because we worship him, because he paid for our sin. We, we, we want to. And that's what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's relational obedience. He didn't say, hey, if you know what's good for you, you'll obey my commandments. He didn't say, now listen, I'm going to bless you. I got all these blessings to give you. And if you obey my commandments, uh, I'll, I'll bless you. I mean, it, what, he said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. What are some of Jesus' commands? Here's a few. Here's a few of Jesus' commandments. You know, in the Old Testament, we have the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, we have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he often quotes the Old Testament Ten Commandments, and he says, you've heard that it is said, do not murder, but I say to you, don't be angry. You know, you have heard that it is said, you know, uh, don't do this, but I say to you, and you, we, these are these are, these are some of Jesus' commandments. I just went through chapter 5 and chapter 6. There's one more chapter. And there's, there's a lot more of Jesus' commands that he's given to us. I mean, look at, look at some of these. Like, love your enemies. One of Jesus' commands. Pray, fast, and give. These are some of Jesus' commands. Uh, deal violently with your lust. Don't divorce. Keep your word. Turn the other cheek. All of these, these are, these are Jesus' commands. Uh, go and make disciples. One of, one of Jesus' commands. Love one another. We'll get there in 1 John eventually. These is, this is one of Jesus' commands. You will, you will never obey these out of obligation and guilt. You're not strong enough. You're not spiritual enough. The only way that you are going to be able to follow the commands of Jesus is if you genuinely want to. And because you love him, and because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you, and there's something in your heart that is moving you and transforming you and guiding you and giving you the power to actually be obedient. This is a distinguishing characteristic of someone who really knows Jesus. Someone who's just religious, who's just faking it, they're obeying because they want to be self-righteous or because they're doing it out of obligation or out of guilt. Someone who legitimately knows Jesus, they have a passion and a drive to worship Jesus, to love Him, to serve Him, and they want to be obedient. And they know they can't do it in their own power, and they pray for it. And that's, that's where the assurance comes in. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, this is the assurance. It says, uh, go to the next slide, there it is. It says, and by this we know. 
by this, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we are in him if we walk as he walked. This is the distinguishing characteristic that, al- that arises from a heart of love and of worship. This is how we know. You can use this to self-analyze and to give you assurance that you know Jesus. I'm going to ask us, uh, uh, like we always do, I'm going to ask us to pray. I got, I got a special, I got a special way that I want you to, that I want you to pray today. Um, I'm going to ask you to think about your sin and think about your failings and. I guess I want to I want to transport you again to this imaginary scene where you could peer into heaven, and I want you to recall right now your personal sinfulness. I know you don't like to do this. I, I know we I know we all come to come to church because we want to feel encouraged and and all and delivered. I, I want you to think about your personal sinfulness, in deed, in word, in attitude, in action. Um, whatever it might be. I want you to think about all those ways that you kind of you kind of miss the mark, you kind of fall short. I want, you to, I want you to get them in your mind right now. And I want to ask you to bow your heads, and I want to ask you to close your eyes, and I want you to get your sin firmly in your mind. Get it firmly in your mind right now. Whatever it might be. All those things that God says don't do. Or those things that God tells you to do and you just kind of can't do. Maybe God has told you to do something. You see, God's commands are more than just what He says in Scripture. Sometimes God comes to you and He tells you to do certain things. He told Moses to go to Egypt. He told Elijah to go confront Ahab. He told Peter to leave his nets. God tells people to do things and maybe He's told you personally for something that he wants you to do. He doesn't just he doesn't just speak to us in his words. He also speaks to us personally through his words. And he calls us to be obedient in that way too. So I want you to think about all the all the ways that you've been disobedient and sinful. And now I want you to think about the pain of punishment, the anger and the wrath that you deserve for it. I want you to imagine, I want you to think, I want you to reflect. I want you to see Jesus on the cross. I want you to imagine his pain and his agony. And I want you to realize in this moment that no matter how bad it is, that it was placed upon Jesus. And I want you to hear this words from Romans that says, There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to imagine Jesus smiling at you right now, cheering for you to overcome your sin, defending you when others accuse, not accepting your sin, not affirming your sin, but accepting you. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? If you don't call upon his name right now, saved the Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart 
that God raised him from the dead, then we can be saved. We spend a few moments in prayer, and then Andy will.